All right, this morning I'd like for you to turn your Bibles two places. Uh, if you would turn to Ephesians 6, and we're going to be there, and also in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Uh, we're going to be looking at two different verses, as I announced last week. Uh, I'm going to be doing a series of messages on spiritual warfare. And, and let me uh, really just kind of define for you, when we talk about spiritual warfare, uh, the tendency is just to think in terms of, well, Satan is my enemy. Okay, we know that. Scripture's clear about that. We see his activity from the very beginning. He's in the garden. He, he, he deceives Eve. You know, he's a, he's a beguiler. And that word simply means that he, he's strategic in trying to bring people down. He wants to bring people down. He wants to, he wants to keep them in their sin. He wants them to, to go out into eternity without Christ. That's his MO. That's what he's all about. But oftentimes we forget about the strategies that he uses. Yes, he tempts us. There is always temptation out there. Uh, the, the Proverbs tells us that sin lies at the door. In other words, we open the door in the morning, the potential, the opportunity for sin is there. It's going to be right in front of us. That's just the world that we live in. We live in a sinful, fallen world. But it's more than that is in regards to strategy. He uses deceiving words. He uses doctrines of demons. He, he uses lying, manipulation. And oftentimes we forget that even within the church, he can subtly use things in the church to bring about his end result. He does not want any church to be successful in its calling and in its ministry. And so these are things that he uses. He, he uses gossip. He uses anything he can to try to undermine the authority of Christ and the Word of God in the church. And this is serious business because, beloved, whether you know it, whether you recognize it, we are in the fight of our lives in the church today. For the gospel, for the ministry of the church. Jesus died for this church. He went to the cross, yes, for us individually, for our sins. He went to the cross for that. But also, He died for the church. He loves the church. He loves the body of Christ. We are His bride. He is the groomsman. He, he has, He wants us to be wed with Him in, in a, in a relationship that says to Him, Jesus, we love you. We're following you. We're going to seek after you. We're going to serve you. We're going to be faithful stewards of our time uh, in the Word, in prayer, in our giving. We're going to bring our tithes and our offerings into the storehouse, Lord, because that is mandated in your Word. That's what you tell us to do. And when we're not doing that, then the strength of the church is undermined. The viability of the church is undermined. This is why when Paul writes his letter to the Ephesians, and you can go back to the very beginning of Ephesians, he's exhorting the church. You know, here he is and he's saying, look, first of all, I want you to walk in faith. You're adopted. God saved you. He brought you into his family. I want you to walk by faith. And then he continues on in chapter two and he says, not only do you walk in faith, but the life of faith is a walk of obedience. Walk in obedience. Be obedient to the Lord. So you've been adopted, and because you've been adopted, you've been accepted. Aren't you blessed this morning to know that you've been accepted by the Lord? He wanted you. 
He went after you. He, he wanted to bring you into his family. He wanted you and I to be his children that love him with all of our heart and with all of our soul and with all of our might. So he tells them in, in, in chapter one, walk in faith, you're adopted. Chapter two, walk in obedience, you've been accepted. Chapter three, walk in truth. Just live by the truth of God. You're redeemed. And a redeemed people are a truthful people. We're honest with God. We're honest about what's going on in our personal lives. We come before God and we, we're, we're willing to confess our sin and just to lay it out before Him. And, and that way we are capable of walking in truth. And then in chapter 4, He says, look, walk worthy. Walk worthy, you're called. There is this resounding call that goes forth from heaven. It is the voice of God. And it is the voice of God spoken to us by the Holy Spirit and through the Word of God. And the voice of God says, Come, all ye my children, come unto me. Follow me. Seek after me. Desire and hunger for my Word. Walk in the light that I've provided for you. Those are the things that God says, look, they're there every day, every moment, every second of your life. So walk worthy. He continues on. And when you get over into chapter 5, and we refer to this oftentimes as the beginning of the love chapter, but he says walk in love. Or in other words, walk in grace. How much does God love you? How much does He love you this morning? He loves you with all of the sovereignty that represents His nature and His character, who He is, the Lord God of creation. The very breath that we breathe right now, God created it. Isn't that awesome? So you take breath in, you put breath out, you take it in. And so He created an atmosphere that has just the right mixture of those elements that are necessary to sustain life. He put the water in the rivers and he made the oceans as a resource and the tides for the, for the month, for the moon and the seasons. I mean, God created all of that and he said, that's all for you. What a wonderful God. What an awesome God. But then when you get over into chapter six, he begins to talk to them about something that I think that was weighing on Paul's heart. And that was the fact that there is this spiritual battle that is going on. Do you know that Satan will do anything and everything he can to keep you out of church? Anything that he can. He doesn't want this, this building filled up. He doesn't want people here in fellowship. He would much rather people be off doing something else. And even as Christians, he doesn't want to build and allow the building of the unity and the body of Christ into that, that faith that is so precious and that grace that is so wonderful. He doesn't want that. He doesn't want the church to become strong. He doesn't want to be a, a driving force in this community. And so he'll do anything and everything that he can to change the priority and the mindset of those in the church, to give them other things that they prioritize over the church, over the body of Christ. 
And yet this is the very body that we've been born into. Think about your personal family this morning just for a moment. We love our families, our kids, our grandkids, maybe even great-grandkids for some. We love them. They're precious to us. We would never do anything or think in any terms of breaking that relationship where we would not want to not spend time with them and, and speak into their lives and have them speak into our lives. And so family becomes important to us. How much more important is the body of Christ? How important is this spiritual family here this morning? And Satan, he, he wants to minimize that. He wants us to not think in those terms. But we've been born again and we've been brought into a unique family. I was just down at the pastor's conference the first part of this week. And when I go to the pastor's conference, I usually see pastors that I haven't seen sometimes. I saw a couple pastors I haven't seen for like three years. And yet when we see one another, we literally run to one another. We embrace, we hug. How are you doing? We want to know about where they're at, what's going on. How's their family? How are they doing? And, and sit down and it's, it's as though we've never been separated. That, that there'd been three years where we haven't seen one another and we're, we're catching up and we're hanging out and we're having meals together. You know why that is? Because it's the family. It's the spiritual family. It's the body of Christ. And if we lose that sense of spiritual family, I believe Satan gains ground. He gets a great victory. Because now, in doing that, the church becomes inconsequential. It's not important. It's not significant. It's just another thing that I do. And we cannot let that happen. We can't allow that in our lives. As he encourages the Ephesians in chapter 6, he says, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And we have a heavenly Father, and if these words of Paul are strategic to understand the fact that we're in a spiritual war, and it's real, and it's difficult, and it's dangerous, then don't we have a loyalty to our heavenly Father? To Jesus Christ, we're joint heirs with Jesus. Think about that for a moment. Wow. Joint heirs with Jesus Christ. And he says, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Now, you don't really get this in the original or in the uh, English version or the English language, but you get something more conclusive in the original Greek because when he says, for this is right, it's an imperative. He said, anything other than this is wrong. So if you're not obeying, children aren't obeying their parents, that's just wrong. That is wrong. That is not right. And that's true of my Heavenly Father. If I'm to obey Him, if I'm one of His children, and He is parenting me, as my heavenly Father, and through His Son, Jesus Christ, and by the Holy Spirit, then this is right. This is the right thing for me to do. He says, honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment, with promise, that it may be well with you, and that you may live long on the earth. He says, so that command from the original Ten Commandments, it has this great promise. What is the promise? That it may be well with you. 
And that word well there means that not just comfortable, but there would be a degree of spiritual health that denotes the way you live your life and the way you're serving the Lord. It's well. You're, you're healthy spiritually. And he says, with you and you may live long on the earth. So there's longevity, so there's health, there's spiritual health, and there's spiritual longevity. I believe God wants us around as long as possible because this world that we live in desperately needs the witness of the church. It needs us as believers. It needs us desperately because there's a whole world that's crying out for help and not understanding that the only help that really lasts and endures is that which comes through Christ Jesus. And we're that voice. We are that voice. And we have to be that voice. And he says, you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath. Bring them up in the training and the admonition of the Lord. And so if earthly fathers are to do that, how much more does our heavenly father want to do that in our lives? God wants to continue to grow us up in our faith and our walk with him. But I have to desire that. I have to want that. I have to long for that in my life. And then he talks about bond servants. Be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling in sincerity of heart as to Christ. Not with eye service as men pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart. With a good will doing service as though as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. And you masters... Now, you're probably wondering, what does those first nine verses have to do with spiritual warfare? Were those principles in there? There are principles that strengthen us for the battle. Things like obedience and faithfulness and surrender and yieldedness. And desire. I mean, these are all words that he's using. He says, look, don't be be men pleasers. Don't use eye service. He says, but sincerity of, of heart. How sincere is our heart for the things of God? Being sincere is more than just what I think or what I feel. But more importantly, it's what I do. And he says... With goodwill doing service. Why does he put that word in there, goodwill? In other words, don't do things because someone's telling you to do that. I can stand up here this morning and tell you all kinds of things that you should do, that you must do, that you ought to do because of what the Word of God says. But but you know what? You have to desire those things, right? You have to desire the goodwill of God to be manifest in your life. And he says, in regards to doing service. So whatever I'm going to do for God, I have to do that with goodwill as to the Lord. And know that whatever I'm doing, it's not first towards men, but it's first towards God. So when I come here and I'm doing worship, first and foremost, it's to God. It's not first to men, but it's first to God. When I open up my Bible, first and foremost, it's to God. God, I want to speak those things 
that glorify and honor you. I want to speak those things that edify and build up each one of us in the most holy faith. That that has to be my desire. He says, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord. And, And this is important because God tells us over and over again, actually 39 times in the New Testament, that when we give ourselves to God, when we're good stewards, God says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to open up the windows of heaven and I'm going to pour out blessings on you. In, and I love what the scripture says, in like manner. So he says, to the proportion that you give, he says, I'm not only going to give that back to you equally, but I'm going to give you more and I'm going to give it to you pressed down and, and shaken together. And, and, and he says, and you know what? It will be more than you could ever contain. I don't know of anyone that wouldn't want that from God, whether it's spiritually or physically or financially. Man. So God's desire is to bless us. And he says he will receive the same from the Lord, whether it is a slave or free. And you masters do the same things to them, giving up, threatening, knowing that your own master also is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. I like that. I like the fact that there's no partiality with God. So whatever I'm said, have said to you this morning, whatever I'm saying to you right now and whatever I'm going to say, that equally applies to me. So it's not me saying you guys. No, it's saying me first. Me first. Because God dispenses everything without partiality. And so it becomes equally incumbent upon each one of us. And then I like what he says in verse 10. And we get to the the heart of it here. He says, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Be strong in the Lord. When Paul outlines the blessedness of the gospel in Ephesians chapters 1 through 3, he intends to motivate us to live like God desires. He he wants us to live godly lives. In chapters 4 through 6, in the church, before the world, and within our families, he wants us to live in a manner, regardless of circumstances that we find ourselves in, that would bring glory and honor to God. And so he builds this foundation as he writes to the Ephesians, but Paul's concluding incentive is found here in in Ephesians 6-20, through and it begins with the following command, Finally be strong in the Lord in the strength of His might. The term finally identifies a transition, but it also demands a conclusion. So he's transitioning here, but he says it's going to come to a conclusion. Paul's final thought identifies the need and the source for the strength that is necessary for us to wage war against the enemy. And that's why he says, be strong. Be strong. Be strong. I was talking to my father-in-law Yesterday, and he's going to have to have hip surgery or hip replacement. And and one of the things he was he was telling me is he said that that he knows that 
in order for him to do that, he, he needs to, he wants to get stronger. Now he's 83 years old and, and so he says, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm doing my exercise. So well, what are you doing? He says, well, I'm doing laps in the living room. <laughs> and I thought, well, at least he's up and he's moving and he's doing stuff. And he, he said, I'm doing, I'm doing laps in the, in the living room. And he says, I'm, you know, I've been kind of working on my upper body and he's a golfer. He loves to play golf. He's actually a very, very good golfer, but, but he said, you know, I realized that that when I go and I have the surgery, he said, that's going to be really helpful. He said, if I'm already as strong as I can be, as fit as I can be, he said, then that will minimize the recovery time. And I said, yeah, that's true. You know, doctors will tell you that. But what is Paul talking to the Ephesians about when he says, be strong, translates a word that means to be strengthened, but more importantly means to be empowered. In other words, you have power that is readily available to you, so take advantage of it. Take advantage of that power. If you went home today and you got a phone call and someone told you that for the next six months we're offering you free power, free electricity, you wouldn't bat an eye. You'd say, yeah, I'll take it. Now, I know some of you would say, well, are there any strings attached? You know, nothing's free. You'll, you'll ask those. But they said, no, no, it's free. You, you would take that power. Why? Why would you want that? Because it's something from the outside that's being given to you, and it's necessary, it's needed. And so you're saying, I'm going to take that. And the reason I want to take it is because it doesn't cost me anything. So when when Paul tells them to be strong, he said, be empowered. He says, it's not costing you anything. God's given that to you freely. You have the ability to walk in power. The verb is a present tense form. It's demonstrating the abiding need for this strength. The need for the Lord's power is constant. Why? Because you're in a battle. He's going to get into it here in these verses. You're, you're, in, you're engaged in warfare. Anyone who's ever been in the military, I worked for the Marine Corps for a short period of time, and I was at Camp Pendleton, Edison Range, and, I, and, and it was the AIT where they were doing their advanced infantry training. And, and I watched the training there with these young Marines. They come out of boot camp, they go there, they're, they're going through their training. They're up at 5 o'clock in the morning. Up at 5 o'clock in the morning, they're doing a 10-mile march. Then they come back into the PT area, and after they've done the 10-mile march, full packs, weapon, they put everything down on the ground, and now they're doing calisthenics. You wouldn't think after a 10-mile hike you would want to do calisthenics, they do calisthenics. What are they doing? They're preparing them for battle. They're building up the strength that's going to be necessary for them to have the endurance to be able to war effectively. Be strong. Paul implores them. It is also noteworthy that this term is in the imperative mood, signifying personal responsibility. I don't usually get into a lot of Greek, but I wanted to lay this foundation here in this first verse 10 because it's it becomes important for everything else that he's going to say. Be strong. Be empowered. 
Take personal responsibility. Utilize the divine might that God makes available to you. This power must be appropriated. It is there for the taking by the one who recognizes this is a necessity in my life. How many of you this morning know that you are engaged in spiritual warfare? That there is a spiritual battle that's going on. And sometimes it's not external. Sometimes it's just what's going on in here. What goes on in your mind? What goes on in your heart? A lot of times there are those that are engaged in massive, aggressive warfare and nobody around them is even aware of it because it's all going on on the inside. Emotionally, physically, mentally, spiritually. But nonetheless, it's a real battle. We need to see to it that we continue to let ourselves be empowered, Paul says. Not merely by the Lord, although that is true, but but in the Lord. In the Lord, meaning in fellowship with Him. He says that, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. The more we know about Jesus, the more we let Him control our lives, the more we will value our relationship with Him. The deeper and more abiding our love will be. The stronger our walk is going to be with the Lord. He goes on here in verse 11. He says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. This describes strength, the importance of strength, the power that corresponds to His might, is employed. In other words, I'm using it. Be strong in the Lord. Paul affirms that this is important. This is significant. Then he states, put on the whole armor of God. The power of which Paul is speaking about comes from being equipped by God for the battle. So I don't have that armament. I don't have that equipment. It's not readily available to me. So I have to get it from God. I remember when I was working for the Marine Corps, they... They have the, their, their armory. And, and the recruits would go in when they first arrive there for their training, their advanced infantry training. What they do is they go into the armory and they begin to outfit them for the next phase in their training. And so when they've left their basic training, basically all they bring with them is just their clothes. And so they go for advanced training, depending on what type of training, and then they go in and they're equipping them. They give them the equipment, whether it's what they put on their feet, whether they, what, what they wear on their head, what they have as far as a weapon for the task that they're going to be involved in. And so they get, they get equipped. Well, God wants to do the same thing in your life and in my life. The spiritual body armor will equip the soldier so that he can stand firm in the fight. I mean, notice what he says here. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. So every component is important because it is not our armor, but it's the armor of God. It is effective. God does not give out cheap armament. It's not made in China. It's a real deal. It's good stuff. 
Only by using God's armor, His strength and His power can we persevere in the conflict, in the battle. Without the divine supplies, we are simply at the mercy of evil forces. If we're not putting on the armor of God, we just become casualties. Without this preparedness, what Paul is saying, you are incapable of standing. You, you won't make it. The enemy's going to have his way with you. And so we must stand against the wiles of the devil. That word wiles translates into an interesting term. The noun is unknown in the Greek. But as Paul uses it a number of times, it can be defined as the well thought out, methodical art of leading someone astray. So don't miss this this morning. Don't think that the enemy is just callously or or unknowingly, you know, working against you. No, he's methodical. He's got a plan and it's strategic. It's well thought out. And it always has the exact same purpose. He wants to lead us astray. He wants us to lead us away from the light. He wants to pull us back into the darkness. He wants to minimize the effectiveness of the church. If, if at all possible, he wants to destroy the church. This is why Jesus reminds Peter. He says, Peter, remember that the gates of hell is not going to prevail against the church. So it's not a defensive posture for the church, but it's offensive. It's not our gates. It's the gates of hell. So what Jesus was saying, he's saying, as the army of God, as the children of God, as the people of God, he says, you're on the move, you're marching, you're going against the forces of darkness. You're not giving up ground, you're taking ground. I like that. I like that. A lot of you are football fans, you know, everybody knows that. Yeah, you have to have a defense, but, but you know, if you want to score goals, you're not going to do it just with defense. You've got to have offense, right? You've got to move the ball down. You've got to take ground. And sometimes it's just two or three yards at a time, but, but you just keep moving towards the goal. What is the goal is, hey, if I'm 50 yards back, I've got to get over, I've got to get that first down, right? And so what are you doing? You have an, an immediate goal, you have an intermediate goal, but then you have a final goal. The, the, the immediate goal just gets you another down. The uh, intermediate goal in football just sets you up strategically to do what? To get to the final goal, to get those six points. Does that make sense to you this morning? It's not... And, and, you know, I'm using an analogy that I understand. So, so, but, but God says, look, I want you to take ground. I want you to think in the, in the immediate, but then also in the intermediate, and then also in the final end. You know, what is the immediate goal of this church? What is our immediate goal? What is it? What is the most important thing for us right now? Being the church. What's the intermediate goal? And that is taking what God gives us and blesses us with and saying, now, let's take that out to the world. 
Let's take that out and let's reach people and let's minister to people and let's encourage people and let's tell them about Jesus because what's the final goal? What is it? What are we all, is all of this about? What are we working toward? We're working toward heaven. And it's more than six points. It's eternity. I just thought of that analogy last night. I hope it makes sense, but... Because I just, I was watching because, you know, football season, they say it's just around the corner. It's a ways around the corner, but it's coming. So, he says in verse 12, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and against powers and against rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. And so, verse 12, he defines for us, who our enemy is. Who who are we coming against? Well, it's not physical. It's not flesh and blood. Now, it can be represented by flesh and blood because Satan uses people. People who are in darkness. People who are unbelievers. People who deny the existence of God. He uses them. I mean, we see that all over the place. I was just reading a, an article about what's going on in Harvard right now. You know, Harvard, many of the Eastern universities and, and, and colleges were started as Bible schools and seminaries. When, when our founding fathers first came here, Harvard was a school of ministry. That's how it originally was started. They were training pastors. And just recently, the Christian group that's been on campus there for over a hundred years, they just dissolved that because of them taking a stand within their group, their administrative group, in saying that they have a policy against any type of fornication. And so they had someone who was on their council, their student council, who was living in a sinful relationship. It was a woman with another woman. And so they said, it's not about the gay, lesbian, LGBT. It's not about that. It's about fornication. It's clearly stated that you can't live in sin. And so what happened was then there were those organizations that came in and they said, you know, you're you're being prejudiced, you know, against this, this individual because uh, she's gay And the university jumped on it and they removed them from the campus. They cut all their funding. And this group had been the only voice, biblical voice on that campus for a 100 years. You don't think there's a battle going on? You don't think there's a war that's raging around us? And this has nothing to do with politics. This is a spiritual battle. This is principalities and powers and evil forces of darkness in high places. And I will guarantee you this morning, without any reservation, those principalities and powers and evil forces of darkness are after you. And they're after me. Constantly trying to bring us down. He uses the word wrestling here. I mean, when I I, I wrestled in high school and... You know, there's not any type of uh, any type of sport that has any closer contact <laughs> than wrestling. I mean, you know, once you engage, once you you know, once the match starts and you engage, you know, you don't get any closer contact, and so it becomes strategic 
that you're, you're prepared, that you're strong, that you know what your strategy and what your tactic is to be able to be effective to overcome your opponent. And what Paul is saying, he's saying that's the kind of warfare you're in. And you're not wrestling with flesh and blood, but with principalities and powers. And I love what he says at the end of verse 12. He says, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. So it is going on at this very moment in this room. There's spiritual warfare. You may be mad at me right now. I don't know. Saying, Pastor, you know, you're just too blunt this morning. You're just, you know, you're saying things that I don't want to hear. Well, you know what? That's part of the spiritual warfare. You know, truth is truth. I'll guarantee you, I was putting this study together over the last couple of weeks. And there were a number of times that I had to just put down my, my Bible and I, I'd go out in the backyard. I've been working in my backyard and I'm just, you know, and I'm just, man, Lord, you know, you're just, you're tearing me up. You're beating me up. But then coming back and realizing it's the truth of God's word. By the way, Jerry, my backyard's ready to be sodded now. And so he says in verse 14, stand therefore. Stand therefore. I was talking to two young pastors. I shared this on Wednesday. They're over in Africa. These guys are in their 20s. They just went over. They didn't know anybody. They just showed up, and in, in, in one of them is in Nairobi. They just showed up. He showed up there in Kenya and just said, I'm doing church, man. I'm going to plant a church. Didn't know anybody. Didn't even know for sure if he had the resources that he was going to. And, and you know what he said? He said, God told me that that was his ground, that that belonged to him. And that all he needed, all he needed was for somebody to go stand. I thought, wow. Lord, do, do I have that kind of faith? It's easy for me to say, well, I'm an old man now. You know, I'm not as strong as I used to be. But then I think about Abraham, you know. And God tells him, hey, just get up and go. I'm not going to tell you where to go. Just get up and go. Just, just get on the move. Get up, stand, move, go. And I'll show you. I'll reveal it to you. It's easy for me, and I'm just talking about me. It's easy for me at this stage in my life to, to think about just setting down all the time. Any of you guys relate to that? It feels good. It's just like, man, I just need to sit down. <laughs> and, and hopefully you got a, a nice recliner to do that in. Because... When you get to be my age, when you sit down, that automatically means nap time. But Paul wants them to understand that, look, it's time to stand. Stand, therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, and above all, Above everything else, taking the shield of faith, which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. This whole picture, this whole scene, it would be easy to say, well, you know, that was Paul and it was different in his time. And it was culturally, politically, 
It was a different time. Paul was a man who was in and out of prison. He was under Roman dominance in most of the places where he was going and planting churches. But one thing is exactly still the same. His real enemy was Satan. Principalities and powers and evil forces of darkness in high places. And that's why Paul had such a strength, a determination, a stick to if you want to use that term, to say nothing is going to separate me from the things that God has called me to do. Something happened with him. That day on the Damascus Road, something happened with Paul that goes beyond just what we read in Scripture. I believe that. I've preached this for years. Something something more than just awareness that this is Jesus that's speaking to me. Something more than the Holy Spirit coming into his life. It forever changed his attitude. Just as powerful as his salvation, just as powerful as being filled with the Spirit was the transformation that took place in Paul's mind. It was a determination, a determined mind that was saying, nothing, nothing is going to stop me from being what God has designed for me to be. Paul rehearses that which the child of God must put on, keep on, and rely on. That's what that armor is about. Put it on, keep it on, and rely on it. You're going to need it. It's necessary. The soldier of Christ must gird his waist with truth, put on the breastplate of righteousness, shod his feet with the preparation of the gospel. And notice the wording there, the preparation of the gospel of peace. There's nothing that will bring more peace into someone's life than the gospel when they get saved. You get saved, man, there's just, man, I'm at peace. I am the Lord's. I belong to Him now. One of the things that the adversary wants to do is he wants to deceive the mind. I think that's why Paul, that third element, just what happened in his mind, his way of thinking. And that's why he wrote what he wrote to the Philippians. Hey, get your mind right. Get that mind in you that was also in Christ Jesus Well, let me just kind of wrap this up this morning. He says, And above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. And he says, Yes, you put on that helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. But then verse 18, he says, Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. And for me, the, that utterance may be given to me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak Paul refers to himself as being in chains, a man who's imprisoned, who's in the throes of spiritual warfare. He's put on the whole armor of God. But what is he saying? You know what? Pray, pray, pray. And even in chains, even in prison, Paul was saying, I have not 
allow the enemy to deter me, to distract me, or to destroy me. As soon as I get out of here, I'm going to go right back to what I was doing. I'm going to go about the business of the gospel. Had any setbacks this week? Had any struggles? Had any... any uh, one, one of my pastor friends at the conference, he said, you know, he says, I, I, more and more I have these little spiritual skirmishes. He said, they're not like full-on battles, but he said, they're just those little skirmishes. And, and he said, it, it's like the enemy, it, 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 you know, it's like snipers. And, they, and, and it's like the enemy just kind of rushes in and hits me and then, then he's gone. And he said, and I'm just like, man. He said, it kind of blindsided, but he said, I've realized he said that that's when I need to utilize the full armor of God. And he said, especially the shield of faith. The shield of faith. How strong must our faith be in these last days? We are told that it is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. And yet, we're reminded that by it, by faith, many are able to stand. We're able to stand as we stand in the faith of God.